Welcome to Citizens History. Wherever you are and however you may be watching or listening, we're glad you're here. And uh, you're listening to Season 1, Episode 9. And I'm Padraig Rowan, a historian at Quincy University in Illinois. And I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Patrick Manning. Patrick is the Andrew Mellon Professor Emeritus of World History at uh, the University of Pittsburgh, and he has had a long career deepening and widening the study of world history. And today we'll, we'll be talking, or at least we'll take as a starting point, uh, his recent book, A History of Humanity, The Evolution of the Human System. And this came out in 2020 with Cambridge University Press. And we'll use this as a starting point. We'll no doubt talk about world history and current events more broadly. So a very warm welcome, Pat. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Look forward to it. And as much as you know, in, in, our, uh, in our prep and in our correspondence, we definitely talked a, a bit about um, you know, world history as it applies today and current events. And I, I really do want to get to that, but, um, and I really like how you approached that in your book as much as it is a deep history of humankind. Uh, it's also, uh, you're also connecting a lot of dots to our current cultural moment, our current political and geopolitical moment. And perhaps we could start at that, uh, at that, you know, deep perspective and then bringing it into uh, into its relevance for today. Uh, if you're okay with that, would that be a good place to start? Off we go. Okay. Um, so, one of the questions I had about, uh, about your book, I'm uh, fascinated by the way that you approached evolution and the way that you're using world history to widen and deepen our uh, our understanding of evolution. So, in focusing on group dynamics in the book, you cut through a lot of old assumptions about um, about evolution. For example, you mention scholars claiming mistakenly to have found the gene for language. You know, this is a there are all sorts of uh, florid claims like this that eventually turn out to not quite be true. So, how does world history, in your view, help us to understand? evolution in a wider and deeper way. Um, I uh, thank you for phrasing the question very clearly. Um, let me begin by breaking world history into pieces a little bit, because world history is a field with with a history and which began with the world history of nowadays or the last century or the last five centuries. And it's still stuck mostly at that level. but. There's a section of world history that's linked to other fields that asks the deeper questions about how did world history get into the dilemmas of recent centuries. So I was trained as a historian of Africa. I was very interested in, in, in African history uh, and uh, began work in the 60s and 70s when the field was new. But one thing that was clear was that African history involved attention to early times, to, to bits and pieces of human evolution. That consisted, for instance, of finding uh, dates uh, of uh, earliest African iron uh, use back to two, 3,000 years ago. Uh, and with time, 
uh, I've asked more and more the question of how history of today is linked to the ancestral history of humanity, that is to say to biology. Now it helps that I was a chemist and spent a lot of time uh, doing biology as an undergraduate student, so I had learned a lot of biology. But by the time I came back to study biology in this, with this idea of linking biology and history, the physical side of humans and the social side of history, by that time, biology had changed immensely. So I've had to learn all the exciting new things and all the debates that have happened uh, with, within uh, history. But the, the point is that looking at humans in terms of the, our most basic habits, trying to trace them back to long periods of time and seeing to what degree those basic habits come up to the present uh, is a, a worthwhile, practical, and really interesting area of work. Um, so that, let me stop at that point. I, I'll go off in various directions yeah. um, with variations on that theme. Yeah, absolutely. We could go in so many different directions. Very quickly, I, as you were talking, I, uh, I was reminded of a study, and I mean, I, I, I saw this myself uh, as a graduate student, that it's, it's a, a very, as much as world history is indeed a burgeoning field, the areas of specialization that graduate students go into these days is more and more and more confined to the 19th and 20th and now even, even the 21st centuries. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we could begin to redress this balance? How, how we could say, well, you know, it's one thing that classics and history have become their own disciplines, but, but how can world history help us to, um, you know, mainly in professional training, but also more, uh, also more widely, also in public discourse, how can it keep us from becoming prisoners of the moment? Yes. Um, it's the focus of history on recent times is is probably expanding, but I don't think it's that much different from earlier times. Okay. It's worth pointing out, though, that if you look at news on the internet, or if you look at the the science magazines, science and nature, and the things that they give attention to, there's a lot of expression of interest in long-term change, in archaeological change, going back two, three, four centuries, uh, in evolution of modern humans in earlier, earlier times. Okay, so at the level of general interest, general readers, there's a lot of interest in this longer time, but it's not done as professional study, right? So, um, by the way, one of the references, one of the reactions to uh, my book, or really to the second book that goes along with my book was, uh, some people working in um, um, the, the the field of international uh, international business came to me and asked me to write a chapter for them about how academic life had changed in the last century for for their field and for other fields uh, because 
Uh, that, that's, so I've been reviewing this question you're asking, where does world history fit into the changes in academia overall? And I've found that, um, there, phone's going off, I'll, I'll, Oh, no problem. Not an instant response, but I got him nonetheless. Um, that, um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty unhappy with the, with the way world history has developed and with the way world history has been treated. The field of history, I mean, I got, I was elected, for instance, as president of the American Historical Association, so that's recognition. It might have been recognition for my work in African history rather than world history, but I chose to think of it as, as, as both. But nonetheless, uh, there's very little recognition of world history in the of formal records of the American Historical Association and so forth. And the efforts to form graduate programs in world history are consistently defeated by the departments that are in them. It's just, sometimes it's just, you know, really directly getting rid of world history. Other times it's just setting in a low enough priority that it doesn't get going. For the moment, there's just not enough of a social priority to develop really firm uh, graduate programs. Um, on the other hand, individual scholars or groups of scholars in different fields are doing are sharing uh, and doing work that has led to really dramatic changes in what is known and understood now compared to just 10 years ago, compared to 30 years ago. Uh, so it's it's painfully slow, uh, but it's it's changing a lot. Yeah, yeah. I one of the things I try to um, impress upon my students is how omnivorous history, and particularly world history, can be. So pulling in as you're talking about a, um, a, a deep study of biology, or uh, a study of linguistics. And I was wondering if you could uh, explain for us how you arrived at your, you have a very interesting hypothesis of, of language emergence yeah. uh, and that, that critical stage of human evolution. Like, how did you arrive at this hypothesis uh, that, you know, roughly 70,000 years ago in Northeast Africa, language finally emerged? And what more or less margin of error should we accept here and how much you know proto language had gone into uh into the development prior to this that finally culminated in this kind of er moment right thank you um that if i can just hold on to the various dimensions of the question that you gave me it, it should it should set it up for a clear um answer first Studies amongst anthropologists, archaeologists, uh, people studying early human history consistently neglect, neglect language. Uh, it's just left out of the story of human change overall. Uh, there, again, there is all this important work that's gone on, but nonetheless, it's been neglected. Uh, second, as for my pass on it, it came, came again through African studies. Among the most important work done in African studies was the um, 
a classification of African languages done by Joseph Greenberg, uh, a, a very important linguist who I had the good fortune to uh, work next to for a couple of years at Stanford uh, and uh, whose work I'd studied uh, long before that the classification of African languages clearly is relevant to the origin of African languages and the spread of languages from Africa throughout. Um, so that uh, was a basic interest in language as a part of African history. And then the, the question about the timing of it, well, that once the genetic studies came along, especially in the 1980s, they gave a clear indication that someplace around 60,000 years ago is when people spread from Africa to the rest of the world. All right, so that, that suggests that if language created a different sort of a social situation, people would have been able to take advantage of that and spread all over Africa, that's not so well documented, and all over the rest of the world. Um, now then, um, then if, if language began at 70,000 years ago, as just picking a date, can you document it with anything? Yes. There are studies suggesting uh, rather uh, significant changes in uh, stone tools, especially in East Africa, that can be dated now thanks to uh, carbon-14 dating uh, to 16 and 70,000 years ago. So that helps reinforce this. Um, and uh, um, but even then, the question is, if it were, how did the language get started? And was it a gradual change or a sudden change? So in the long debates about gradual versus sudden, the gradualists have been most important in uh, over the long term in thinking that speaking went back as far as Homo erectus and so forth. Uh, and that's, a, that's where the term proto-language comes in, that it was developed um, especially by some some linguists who who thought that in the early days people didn't have syntax, they didn't have organized sentences, but had uh, you know just a few individual terms that they shared, and that that work sort of gradually nurtured um, strengthening the neurons that enabled a stronger form of language to to develop. The place where my work counts most in all of this is assembling these different parts of the argument with the particular argument that it was the invention of language in a short period of time by those people who are best able to do it. Who's best with language? Everybody knows it's kids from eight to about 18. That's when they are best at inventing and learning language. And when their play gives them a chance to do, to. Uh, de develop, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Southern Californian, so Valley Speak was my daughter's language. <laughs> uh, and uh, th at that time, uh, when she was a youngster. Um, so uh, that's my that's my thesis, that the, the uh, genetic basis for language was probably there for a long time, but it took a social organization, the creation of groups of first 15 people and then up to 150 people who developed the social system of, of uh, exchanging words and agreeing on how to complete a sentence and so forth that enabled a whole new form of exchange. Of course, people had lots of communication before then, but it could never have the specificity 
of having adjectives and adverbs and all of those uh, details that we exchange all the time in spoken language. Yeah, I I found it fascinating your alternative explanations for how how this developed. Number one, as you said, uh, you know, children, children playing and experimenting and and um, creating new variations. And then the other one, uh, besides youthful creativity, was female bonding. And I found that fascinating because in my experience of learning foreign languages as an adult, I um, I always found it much much easier to speak with women than with men at those very early stages of learning. Men mm -hmm. inevitably used more slang, they used more, they spoke quicker, they mumbled. Where women, uh, I think you mentioned at some point, women are kind of at the center, potentially at the center of language transmission. Uh, not just because they interact with the young, but because they, um, yeah, you, you can just, understand them better. They're primed more to speak with people who aren't in their very, very tight little bailiwick. And um, do I have you right that? Y yes, that's, man, that social, that social interaction amongst the women is not something that shows up 70,000 years ago, but it goes far back before that, you know, it's sharing childcare. So there's one part of the dimension argues that human societies got a little bit different from those of other apes and preceding hominids by uh, allowing more contact amongst amongst women to uh, share kids and eventually let the fathers be part of the um, upbringing of children. Uh, and uh, Robin Dunbar, who's uh, a primatologist and a psychologist and uh, anyhow, a, a polymath, uh, developed a, uh, wrote a book based on the idea that gossip amongst women was the, the basis of language. Well, it, it didn't take off on that basis, but it, it is definitely, I think, part of the uh, overall story. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I got most out of this section of the book was the, I, I got to visualize in a way that I hadn't before, the ways in which this, uh, this new language ability really did transform human societies. I got to visualize the ways in which um, you've got this core of language speakers and then radiating outward, you've got these various, you know, various levels of proficiency of pigeons and creoles, um, while at the core, the language was most sophisticated. And I, I think of the industrial revolution or just technology generally, um, the ways in which it will force everything else into an orbit around itself and um, sometimes suppress similar innovations elsewhere. I, yeah, those to explain, are, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, uh, no, those are giving me new, new, new thoughts and ways to think of, of the development of language. It, I, as I see it, one group developed a language to a, to a degree of, of substantial sophistication and 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 became and then that uh, group spread throughout a whole community and then the community grew, especially because other people w would join it, hoping to benefit from the obvious 
prestige and strength of language. And so then language groups split. Um, and so communities, human communities, as I see it, have been limited to about 150 people in size. Once they got bigger than 150 people, they would split. And, and then the two different communities would each have perfectly good languages, but they would change with time. And this process would lead to migration, first in different parts of Africa, and then throughout the whole uh, of, of uh, the, old, the, the old world uh, and into the Americas by you know, some 20,000 years ago. So all those languages were pretty much the equal of each other. And they and linguists can eventually figure out something about the types of changes. You know how many. I mean, one interesting thing is the click sounds of Southern African languages stayed there, but they got dropped out amongst all of the other languages. And Hawaiian language has less uh, um, less different sounds than any other language. It's almost all a bunch of vowels. Uh, they're all perfectly good languages. They work fine. They've just been simplified in interesting ways over over time. Um, the but the ability, but the the these different groups communicated with one another, and we don't know exactly how. So that's that's led me into studying networks and institutions. So networks as ways in which people are grouped together. And network theory is a field of study that's expanded explosively in the last 20, 25 years. Um, so drawing on that somewhat. And then institutions, that is to say, organizations that of people that have a common an, an agreement to work together and a common consciousness. So this is a big Another big area of debate as to whether you explain human behavior in terms of individuals or whether you also explain it in terms of the operation of groups. And group theories uh, have not gotten very far, are not really recognized. Um, and um, it's sort of like the, the neglect of language itself, the neglect of language as a way of forming a group, a, a particular sort of group consciousness. Uh, that enables you to do more things with it. So it's not that surprising that the development of visual art, you know, especially Lascaux and those other famous caves in, in France, but, but uh, artwork painting representational art that's being discovered in all the different continents uh, spread as humans spread and language was, so that the work, the artwork was done not just by one great artist, but by a, a workshop, a team of people who discussed uh, and evaluated the work that was done. Um, so um, the history of institutions is, a, is as I see it, a follow-up to, to language. Yeah, is there a, with this new emergence of language, greater hierarchies could develop and um, to explain these hierarchies, do we need that that merge function that that, that you talk about? Uh, I believe it was Chomsky's merge function, uh, or is this distinction that that Chomsky and Berwick make uh, between internal thought and external communication? Is this at least sometimes kind of a forced contrast, 
Or is there really a lot of mileage to be gotten to be able to explain the emergence of those hierarchies and those newer, sophisticated human societies? Well, I'm, I'm a believer in the logic of the merge thesis. Okay. I don't think it has much to do with hierarchy, uh, at least until a much later stage. Um, but the idea it was, uh, did people have the logic, the logical powers to create syntax? And certainly no other animal has had the logical powers to create syntax. And what, what uh, Chomsky and Berwick did is they came up with a simple uh, model in which if people are facing two or three issues at once, they first compare issue A and issue B, and then once they get those straight in their mind, then they can introduce issue C and put A and B as a group and deal with, in, deal with C, okay? And that this sort of sequential logic, having your established knowledge and then the next issue that you add into it is something that people, their argument goes, be, began to do at a certain point, and they believe it was a, a, uh, a genetic change or maybe an epigenetic change, maybe a change in the developmental stages of humans that got this work started, but that having nothing to do with speaking, but just that the reasoning that people followed, that humans got smarter by being able to segment the solved from unsolved parts of their thinking. Okay, so the way I grab this, and, and Chomsky, I don't think, got this far with it, is that it's the social arrangements of figuring out how to get people to spend enough time to work on the language to assemble the fruits of these step-by-step -step decisions. So one of the things that I, I realized rather late is the importance of not just your agreement to be part of a, link, a speaking group, but the work that people do over, how long does it take to learn Turkish? Uh, I felt really, really comfortable after about two years. Yeah, uh, but you already but... knew English. Right, exactly. And I had I had other languages under my belt, but I was also in my 30s when I started to learn Turkish. Okay. And so I think that probably made it a little bit more difficult. Okay. Yeah. But basically two years to learn a language. And that's for small children as well, or 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 uh teeny boppers, you know, but that needs to be treated as work. If they don't do the work, they don't learn the language. If they do the work, they also have to you know how each child has their own way of pronouncing things, um, and they have to give up their favorite way and and accept the consensus on it. And so that's what I mean in talking about um, the uh, the the consensus, the agreements, the the give and take of language. The the uh, that sort of behavior has to be learned at a social level. And those and that work amongst a group finally created a language, and then you can go and teach that language to other people. They get drawn into that community. Okay, so now back to merge, which gave people the basic logical power to to do that. That gets us back to the early human early questions about when does Homo sapiens begin to exist? 
Is it was it just one tiny population that spread to everyone else, or was it the interaction amongst a bunch of people who were learning bits and pieces of modern humanity? Okay, so we haven't. There there are people who claim to have found merge actually functioning in the human brain. All right, so that discussion is going on. There's doubters. Uh, and then there's the question of when historically such a uh, structure could have come to existence in any individual human and then spread throughout humans. But the, the assumption that I've made is that somehow this merge capacity, the capacity for logic, which was ultimately put to work in language, but could have been used for, for solving lots of other problems in daily life, had spread throughout humanity for thousands of years before it was adopted into language. Then hierarchy comes later. It becomes as social institutions become larger and the questions of leadership become important. But let me point out that a language does not have a boss. It doesn't have a king. It doesn't have an authority. It's done everything entirely on a, I don't know if you want to say democratic, but in any case, a common and popular basis. Anyone gets to offer innovations and they succeed or fail based on who knows what, but not political power. So the formation of the first institution was the formation of a common bond amongst people that created something that was really new and really effective. Yeah. This might be a good transition to uh, to the agricultural revolution. Hmm. You know, so beginning around ten thousand years ago, uh, the uh, the hierarchies, the complexities of human societies really increased. But I like how you how you treat it in a um, you go way back before that ten thousand year mark to try to explain some of the changes that were happening. And could you? Spend some time explaining uh, for our listeners, you know, how um, how you've been tracking the, the and studying the boundary of the agricultural revolution. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the one of the simplifications that inevitably gets spread around by the way in which we've talked about the agricultural revolution. Uh, Really, for most of a century now, you know, it was sort of 1940s that the argument was first made and that it was first dated to about 10,000 years ago, as if it all happened at once, as if it happened either one place in the Fertile Crescent and spread from there, or later on, as if it happened all at once in all the different areas of the world. Uh, so, chronologically, that this is not right. There is a, uh, a, a set of organizing principles underneath it. That is to say, it was really cold in about 22,000 years ago. And then after that, the temperature rose quite readily up till about 8,000 years ago. And then it has remained almost unchanged. So that the changes, what we think of as big changes, in temperature are quite small compared to the sorts of changes that existed at the time in which agriculture was getting organized. So 
the wet world was one in which agriculture could be developed. But in the time that when things were getting wetter from 20 to 10,000 years ago, um, there were pressures that made people form larger groups. And so this is another of these big human transitions that is pretty much neglected. And uh, so I've just, I'm, just, I'm trying some things to try to show the, um, what might've been some of the procedures by which people formed larger groups. But let's just say that uh, the groups of say 1500 people of what we think of now as hunters and gatherers are 10 times larger than what were the groups of people in the days of languages covering uh, Eurasia. Uh, so big uh, development in size of organizations that has something to do with maybe changing social structures and maybe with changing environment. Uh, but a particular agricultural part of things is that uh, there's increasing documentation of intensive um, gathering of grains, of gathering of roots, of uh, expanded fishing, lots of ways in which people expanded the um, uh, production of food, at the end of which came uh, uh, reproduction of crops by seeds. This is the part where it really gets going. But even then, if you go crop by crop and ask when the various crops were developed, it wasn't all at the same time. So maize, for instance, one of it, it might be the biggest crop in the world, but it was developed relatively late, you know, more like 5,000 years ago than than before and and then it just continued to grow so there's there's a lot of mix and match and the details in each place are fascinating it's also worth emphasizing that every continent has some major development of agriculture within it not that the agri not that the agriculture spread spread every place within the continent but uh, every every place had some major agricultural uh, center um, okay, then um, I've been hiding from the question of hierarchy that you've asked me about, right? <laughs> so, and um, the uh, probably the development of hierarchy came not so much out of production, but out of distribution of the of the output, and uh, that in the you know, stages after 10,000 years ago, maybe after 8,000 years ago, which were times in which in one case or another, certain people became the leaders in distributing uh, the produce uh, to people. And then it depends on whether the, that particular type of produce is stuff that can uh, be preserved for a long period of time or whether, it, whether you have to eat it right away. Um, so, uh, and then in the organization of societies, one um, distinction that, uh, that I've relied on a lot and that you noted is the distinction between uh, hierarchical societies and uh, societies that focused on um, achievement, right? Where, so rather than a leader being able to pass leadership on to a son, or a nephew, 
uh, a leader passes on to whoever is demonstrated to be the best leader for the next generation. And so you can find both of those principles developing in societies in all different corners of the world. Um, but let me stop at that point and see where you'd like to go next. And yeah, I I want to I, I want to definitely come back to this point to talk about how how if at all we can connect what you just said to modern ideas of meritocracy. Yeah, like I, I know that that's a kind of a hot button issue these yeah. days. Yeah, no, but just staying on the um, just staying very quickly on the um, that subject of the emergence of agriculture. Um, the emergence of pastoral uh, formations of agricultural formations. I really liked your approach where you were you were following the scholars Flannery and Marcus uh, of tracing the emergence of elites and commoners rather than the usual approach of where we're trying to pinpoint exactly when the state in quotation marks emerged. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's a, a very important approach. It's just that there, there's no explanation of when the state emerged that I've ever found convincing. And if we can think of it more as a cyclical uh, thing of emergence, uh, that might be better. In in your view, is 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 the whole issue of when the state emerged kind of a red herring, or can that be woven in here? I think it reflects a, a an exaggeration of the importance of politics in history. You know, history and and it it emphasizes an exaggeration of a top down approach to history. So I've written a certain amount about bottom up bottom up versus top down history. You know, world history began a study of empires and emperors and armies and that sort of stuff. So I don't want to claim that that's not important, but it's not the unique cause of uh, historical change. Yeah. And um, and so, I mean, uh, just to hop to the example of institutions, which I've mentioned before, the study of institutions in the modern world Douglas North got himself a nice economics Nobel Prize for talking about institutions in what is entirely a top-down approach. Institutions are just there. They depend on social norms, and the social norms gradually change the actual structure of the organizations. It's, a, it's, it's not that that's utterly ridiculous. It just totally leaves out the question of where the uh, underpinnings of that how those, even a, an institution like that, how it runs on a day-to-day -day basis, and especially where it came from in the past. So, um, so but, but all of this just gives world historians more to do. You know, one has to anal analyze the situation from the bottom up and analyze it from the top down. Um, there's, but I also, I wanna mention a neat book by uh, Jan Lukasen it's called a story of work. It came out just last year, and it uh, it traces labor from the very earliest of human times. So, speaking early speaking days and before that, right up to the present, and spends a, a lot of time working on this question from the point of view of the workers. Um, 
So I won't try to summarize all, all, of, it, all of his work, but I, no, I learned a lot from him. He, he spent a lot of time working on households and that made me realize that I wanted to uh, do uh, an article that I, that I have done that asks about the formation of households and how households of basically about five people, um, not so much a family structure, but a residential structure have existed throughout millennia and continue to function, although households perform different functions now than they used to. Um, yeah. More bottom-up history. Yeah. Another, th another to stay with the theme of bottom-up, I, uh, I was fascinated by, this is definitely something that we're all thinking about these days, um, I was fascinated by the way in which you uh, you framed it. Like, given the many problems that we face today, uh, the global, the national problems, um, uh, you know, the atomization of uh, of Western liberal societies. Um, what are the implications of that prosperity that uh, that you lay out of the last few centuries, in which? we see a tripling of the human lifespan. And who knows, maybe we're at the, we're, we're at the limits of that, or at, at least the temporary limits of that, you know, with, with lifespans now falling among some demographics in, mm -hmm. uh, in rich countries. But what are the greatest challenges that come with this prosperity? Is, this, this, is it fair to call it something like an aristocratic disease that, that you know, with prosperity, we, we weaken, we, we uh, we we get weak and so, something like even Haldun's theory of sweeping away uh, mm. of sweeping away the corrupt elites and uh, the new elites inevitably becoming corrupted in their turn is that what's going on or is there something more structural going on as well? Um, now you just reminded me of the book by Graeber and Wengro. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think of a history of humanity. I've got it right here. Um, the dawn of everything. Dawn of everything. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's that. Yeah. That title is just for getting attention. It's not for telling you yeah. what's in the book. Totally. But <laughs> their their argument is that at some point in the development of society, something went wrong. Right. And they have uh, their their authorized figure who gives them this is a, a native uh, Canadian leader uh, in the 17th century, who explains that the Westerners have it wrong. Uh, and uh, in any case, that's, there, there's the idea that something went wrong in the organization of society. Um, so, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm basically going in that direction. I think that institutions, especially because we let institutions be structured without paying attention to how they're structured, uh, are leading us into trouble. Um, so is it prosperity itself? Well, there, there is an immense change in prosperity, but it's not just in the West. Um, so of the things that have changed, um, now everybody has a nation, that since the 1960s or 70s. Just about everybody has literacy. Literacy rates are so high, right? Palestinians are getting bombed to smithereens, but their literacy is up in the 90% and, and, and better uh, 
you know, and and um, and uh, and that's in Arabic, uh, and so and also health levels. You've just emphasized how the health health levels, the the uh, life expectation has risen. There are there are a few African countries with low life expectations, but there are plenty of African countries with rather high life expectations, and the world as a whole, you know, is surviving much better. I was just thinking of visiting Africa now versus visiting Africa when I was first there in the 60s, and look at the obvious physical health of people nowadays compared to the many sort of disabilities or weaknesses that I saw in physical life at the time. Okay, so one interesting question to ask you know, in in operating the global economy, the big powers, the the G7, um, have controlled all the big economic institutions, and have prevented equal trading rights for the poorer countries and so forth. And yet, the U.S or G7 proportion of global GDP has been declining steadily, right? So if the big countries are holding on to the, um, to most of the wealth and restricting the poorer countries, how is it that the poorer countries have been able to advance in proportion to, to uh, the, the, portion, the portion of the total global pie that they get, right? So there, there must be some process that enables people in the rest of the world to go ahead and advance themselves somehow. It might be, maybe it's something special to them. More likely, I would say it's a general human process. It just works it away, its way around to others. So, um, um, you know, when I hear explaining the world in terms of the West and the rest, I always try to get out of that. I always try to look at things yeah. in a different way. Um, no, absolutely. I uh, Most of the time when I hear people say, for the first time in human history, it's, it's, <laughs> it's generally not. It's generally, it's generally not. There, there's a long pedigree here. There's a genealogy here. And um, yeah, to be able to, I mean, it's, this is one of the reasons why when I teach the world history survey, you know, the usual way of doing it is say origins to 1500 or thereabouts, 1600 maybe. And then the second semester is, is the rest up until today. Yeah. And so I try to split it at the birth of Islam just to, mm -hmm. just to muddy those waters, just yeah. to say, okay, we, we, we need to, um, we need to look at these patterns far, far, far before Europe, Western Europeans started their global expansion. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked the, um, when you were, I don't know if you, if, if you were hinting at meritocracy, but I certainly glommed on like that achievement-based versus a hierarchical uh, society. I know that meritocracy is very much under fire uh, from a lot of different sectors in our society, and there's a, there's some there, there's some good arguments. But if we strip it down to uh, attempting to get the best people to do the um, 
uh, to do the various things that we need them to do. Um, and especially with the elites, especially making uh, the elite more meritocratic. I know that I, I've, I've, I've gone into all these arguments and, and we, we, could, uh, we could certainly go into them here if you like, but I, I would love to get your take on, um, is, this a, is this a dead end or is this something that we can reform and resurrect in order to try to help us to confront these many problems that are facing us today? So, I got as far as I could in addressing these questions in the, the last uh, two chapters of, of my 2020 book. Yeah. Um, um, I'm gonna interrupt myself for a moment here and uh, wave my other book here. This is uh, 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 Methods uh, for Human History. And so, this was the split. This was kind of the literature review that would have been part of uh, the history of humanity, but it became its own so book. Correct? Cambridge, Cambridge University Press didn't like my title. I wanted to call it uh, the uh, human system. They wanted to call it history of a uh, human. Uh, what did they call it? Uh, history, history of humanity because they thought it'd sell more. But there were also already three or four other books with the same title, and it didn't sell very many. Um, so. And then they wanted to get rid of the chapters in which I explained my methods and in which I explained the developing thinking about evolution. Uh, in any case, I had fun doing that and I put them into this, this uh, other book. Um, and now I'll go back to answering the, the question about the last two chapters overall. Um, so an immense expansion uh, an immense amount of inequality, right? And that of, of social inequality uh, and an immense uh, uh, waste of the physical resources of the world. So a monster environmental problem, a monster problem of social inequality, which is certainly being fought out on the battlefields of, of uh, Gaza and every place else in the Middle East nowadays. And the third problem is an inability to know what to do. So, they, those who did work in um, history of climate did a wonderful job in diagnosing what was happening in climate. They also put a lot of effort into preparing to get society to adopt their recommendations for change, and they failed. Not because they're not any good, but there just wasn't enough energy put into that from inside or outside that group. So, but just, you know, in both of these areas, we've failed to do anything about it. Um, nonetheless, um, one of the weak areas of world history is it's done very little about history of science and or history of knowledge generally. Okay, so I've taken the knowledge and think of it as general knowledge and then specialized knowledge. And that both of those are important. So literacy, that's general knowledge and popular culture, that's general knowledge. So the amount of knowledge, amount of knowledge amongst the general global community, and one way to phrase that is in just in terms of Facebook connections back in the days when Facebook was governing, you know, but that people could contact their relatives when they needed to contact them. Such a change. Um, 
And then at the advanced level, so many major scientific problems are being solved or their difficulties are being clarified, and so including history of humanity. But the society has not decided that solving the big problems in human history is a priority. They have not created great national or international research centers to gather together the, that they could gather to answer these questions. You know, I personally have seen any number of my own visions of this to, to be given a little bit of support and then just trashed. Um, so, but I do argue that um, the the scientific, I, I, I'll take the part of the, the um, climate uh, study that emphasizes the, the solving of the immensely difficult problems that they solved uh, to, to model climate. And then at the level of popular culture, I'll say that the hatreds amongst people around the world have really, really diminished and the ability to interconnect and to, and to speak up uh, including periodic times uh, to have major demonstrations in the streets of the world, uh, have um, uh, you know changed the way in which uh, common people uh, have been able to express themselves on really big issues. Um, so, one of the questions that you asked me. Uh, earlier on this as are the changes going to be slow or is it going to be big and revolutionary? And my answer to that is yes and yes. Um, you know, you can imagine out of the current situation that rather than uh, the U.S. government doing as it has done since 1945 and gather together the participants in some uh, great um, uh, conflict and determine for them what the answer will be. That's what it's been. We've had a United Nations, but the United Nations has in many times acted out the will of the of the U.S. or in other times when it's tried to restrict what the U.S. is doing, it's failed to stop the U.S. from doing it. The alternative would be that some coalition of all of those who cast the majority of the, of the votes in December uh, calling for um, a ceasefire in, in Gaza in, uh, in the in General Assembly. So that was 153 countries that they might be able to organize through the United Nations a way of having that body be the one that resolves the question. So, and, and really coming up within the next, however long, you know, could be soon, it could be, could be a couple of years. The, the resolution of the current war in Gaza is going to be either led by the United States, in which case the position of the Israelis will be privileged and there will not be any rapid uh, um, creation of a Palestinian state or it could be organized by the efforts of the um, of the United, efforts through the United Nations, and in that case, um, the Palestinians would find themselves as the top priority. It doesn't mean that things would work out for them because you don't know exactly what the Israelis and what the Americans are going to do if they find out that they've suddenly lost the initiative. But it it would lead, could lead to a very different direction. 
And if the United States had suffered a major defeat and then learned how to live with that major defeat, then we would have a really different world situation. That would make it much harder for the Russians to continue with their invasion of uh, Ukraine. It would make it much diff more difficult for China to try to grab all of the different sorts of territory that they're trying to grab now. So this is uh, uh, a better than average uh, example of possible really large scale change in political operation. It might not work out in the way I'm thinking it might, but it's an example. It shows the direction in which change has been gradually moving in the year since 1945. Yeah, it, as I've, Especially since the seventh of October, and um, and the subsequent war, yep. we I had never thought about it in these terms before. Even though, okay, everybody knows that the U.S. is Israel's security guarantor, um, but as I you know, I, I teach a little bit on this subject, you know, in the context of the late Ottoman Empire and uh, what comes out of that. It's a class I, I teach called Enlightenment and Genocide. And it, it you know, encompassing the, especially the end being bookended by the Armenian Genocide and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. uh, but having to take into account the early years of the British Mandate, mm -hmm. it's a... I've I've come to this comparison, and I'd love I'd love to hear what you think about it. In the same way that the United States became, in some ways, very much against its will, the inheritor, the continuator of French colonial ambitions in what was then known as Indochina. Uh, in the same way that we, at first, we were opposed to the French uh, colonial presence in Indochina, but based on the domino theory and, and much else, we became the, uh, the power in the region after the French departed after, after their defeat in 54. In a very similar way, we became the inheritor of the British mandate in Palestine. Mm -hmm. And we know how disastrous that was for the Brits. You know, they were going back and forth, attempting, you know, making contradictory promises to both sides trying their best to be impartial um, or uh, at the very least credible mediators, uh, but it didn't work, you know, just uh, they were, you know, uh, right. one of the, one of the things that, that I remember that that has always stuck in my head is the British governor, Ronald Storrs, uh, I believe this was in the 1920s. Uh, he, he said, so he was he was there in Jerusalem, right? And he's attempting to hold the ring between uh, uh, between um, Jewish settlers and uh, and that dynamic and and Palestinians who are clamoring for statehood. And he said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing. I'll try to get it right. He says, two hours of Arab grievances drive me into the synagogue." He says, while after an intensive course of Zionist propaganda. I am prepared to embrace Islam. And we can criticize up and down the British mandate and the British role in that part of the world in those in those decades and in, in the interwar decades. Um, 
But there was this attempt to be a credible mediator where it doesn't seem that the US has even tried to be that. And so um, I'd love to get your thoughts on the, the, the ways in which, okay, we can rehearse the history. We can say, look, uh, in 48, when Truman recognized the state of Israel, Truman's senior foreign policy advisors, all of his senior foreign policy advisors, Marshall, Atchison, they recommended against that recognition that we had to do something different, otherwise it would be disastrous for our own interests. And so what is that something? Um, if you could, if you could, uh, you know, look into your crystal ball and say, in a hundred years time, what would be the best case scenario that we could hope for based on the both slow and sudden changes that you're talking about? Would there be two states? Would there be some sort of international, would there, would Jerusalem be under international control? Would there be one state? Um, what would be the, what would be the thing that you see or the, the spectrum of possibilities that you see in your crystal ball? In the late 90s, I heard a Palestinian speaker at a conference on the, on the Middle East um, organized by a, a, a Jewish scholar say something that has been spread around, but I had I heard it for the first time, but that the solution in Israel might be a South African solution. That is to say a single state, including all. So that uh, that idea has been floating about and is there as a, as a possibility. Um, and, uh, and that would be fine with me. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that for those who are gaining the upper hand now, that is to say, since Hamas has uh, not collapsed in uh, in the face of the attacks by the uh, Israeli army, so that's a new situation, right? Where the where the Arab side actually holds on for, for in a, in a long war, and then the number of supporters that they have grows. So, and even though it's not what Hamas is asking for, the consensus amongst those who are supporting the, the Palestinians is a two-state solution. Yeah, but what boundaries? Will it be the 1967 boundaries? And the 1967 boundary or the pre-1967 boundaries will be the non-negotiable demand of those on the Palestinian side, and uh, it would be hell freezes over before uh, Israel would accept it. You know, unless there, there's also the possibility of major transformation in in Israeli government and society. And everybody knows that uh, Netanyahu is going to be out soon and soon enough. It doesn't mean a major change within Israel. But yeah, you don't know. But I just think things are set up so that it's either no solution or a two-state solution, and that figuring out how to do the two states is going to be really hard. Um, but 
what I've what I've learned is that uh, the in the last thirty years since the G seven found the need to form the G twenty, and then the G twenty sort of broke up with the formation of BRICS, and where there are so many other and the Islamic. Uh, uh, conference meets every year and the Saudis hold their big uh, celebrate the Saudi economy conference. There are so many international meetings that diplomats have to go. And uh, a country like China has to take so many different positions at all the different meetings that they go to. All right, there's a flexibility in international relations at the top level in the current situation. Um, so BRICS was looking really strong, and then the Argentine government became taken over by people who wanted to get out of BRICS immediately. So things are always shifting, but there's a lot more space for the general public to speak up, right? So the governments of Jordan and uh, Saudi Arabia are now saying, sure, we would ultimately establish relations with uh, Israel um, if everything's okay. And then when you take popular uh, um, polls, the population is 99% against um, diplomatic relations with, with Israel. So you don't know exactly what's gonna happen, but this situation is one where there's a lot of dialogue and not yet a world war. Um, so that dialogue, um, is the, um, it's my hope. Yeah. Again, going back to the top down versus bottom up. Yeah. Uh, we, we tend to think of, um, the bottom up being the vehicle of, of, of lesser inequalities, right? The the for the force, the social force for justice. Mm. And there are many, many times in which that is the case. But for example, I think of I think of America uh, during the years of the um, of the civil rights movement, in which this is actually a top down thing and seen as a top down thing. Uh, from the point of view of the southern states, from the point of view of white people in southern states, saying Washington is attempting to impose a tyranny on us. Uh, we're fine. This 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 is what democracy looks like. This is what states' rights looks like. And this is a this is a top down tyranny over here that's getting imposed on us to desegregate schools and so forth. Do you see anything like that? Any room for anything like that? Whether we're talking specifically about the uh, Palestine-Israel issue, or just global inequality more broadly, uh, is there any room for for top-down movements to to mitigate the worst abuses? Oh, um, I've been learning about uh, some of these. Kofi Annan, when he was uh, Secretary General of the UN, gathered together a bunch of rich companies and had them form an organization. And they meet at Davos, and this guy, what's Schwartz, is that his name, was the head of of, uh, of uh, the Davos meeting, has um, um, given a lot of attention to an organization which is supposed to show that 
um, capitalist countries can, or capitalist firms can be the leaders into straightening out the problems of the ecology and so forth. Um, and uh, and then this group that um, that I was working with in um, uh, international economics or inter, uh, international business, uh, that is to say, they study multinational corporations, and they're 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 not necessarily enthusiasts for multinational corporations, but they study multinational corporations, but they become quite um, taken up with this idea of joining with. Uh, the Davos uh, uh, leadership and the big corporations to try to uh, do some really imaginative social science research that will you know, solve the problems of multinational corporations. Multinational corporations and their scholars so far only care about the multinational corporations. They don't study the effect of multinational corporations on the rest of the world. As they expand, you don't know what, what ways they're they're squashing or okay, but, but they're beginning to figure this out. So that's a part of it. To rely on that entirely would be fatal. And they and they can only succeed if they put a lot of money and energy into supporting what is definitely their other side. And they're they have made no move to do that so far. You know, so I'm not predict. I'm predicting all the worst predictions for uh, climate. I'm making those predictions uh, un until the groups that have the power uh, recognize, but they only recognize when they're pressed somehow to give a substantial, really substantial support to the people who are their strategic enemies. We'll see. Nothing, nothing the next week, but where this, this, but this global struggle that we have stumbled in, stumbled into now, and where most people in the United States have no idea about it, right? There's no, you know, I can go to the United Nations channel and find out what the news is there, but only on the rarest occasions can I find any, any, any news about the United Nations or they all the countries that are speaking at the United Nations. Uh, uh, to see that as something that's spread around to the American public of whatever persuasion. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, if you go to the international organizations, you know, Médecins Frontières and, and uh, uh, Amnesty International and so forth, the number of Americans who are playing, le playing leading roles in those is huge. I mean, really huge. And so, and that so that that directly contradicts the statement I just made. And yeah, I think they're both true somehow. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that doesn't seem even paradoxical at all. Yeah, that we've, <laughs> got a, we've got a massive. Uh, this is a massive country with a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And, um, yeah. God, I'm I'm very appreciative of of the time that you've taken. I and I. I, I know that we could go on for a lot longer, and I, I hope to have you on the podcast again. Um, this has just been such a rich conversation, and um, 
Well, um, to, to conclude with or anything to ask me or no, uh, no, um, you know, people who get to listen to this will, will agree with it. Some with, with, with each of us or the 2 of us together in some ways and, and not in other ways. But if we've got to the point of using. History and uh, historical change of our species as a starting off point for discussing all of these questions and that's. That's something to be pretty happy about. So, thank you for the chance to to go through these interesting discussions with you. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, I'm so grateful to, to, to have you on and to learn from you. My pleasure. All right. Well, take care of yourself. And um, 